Hey there, Valley Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. We are so thankful that we have this online platform where we continue uh, to be able to meet. And if you're a guest with us, viewing us for the first time, we want to say that we are honored by your presence. Thank you so much for viewing us. We find it as a great privilege that you would view this service. And we are hoping that you're going to be really excited about this new series that we are starting. See, we just kind of finished up a series called The Problem of pain. That's archived on our website. You can look at that if you want to see that. And now we're moving into a different series called Our Story. Our Story. Now, what are we doing with this series? In this three-part series, what we want to unpack is, is kind of an ambitious goal, if you will. See, what we want to do is, is several things. One is I want to tell you my story, a, a little bit of my story. See, I think that's appropriate as the new lead pastor here at Valley Bible Church. I, I feel like I need to introduce myself maybe to some of you or to some of you who I already know. I need to reintroduce myself. So that's one of the goals in this series. But also in this series, what we want to do is we want to unpack God's story, the large story wrapped up in Scripture. And then beyond that, so stack on another goal, we want to tell your story. Now, you may be thinking, well, how can you do all three of these things at the same time tell my story, God's story, and, and your story. Well, I think you'll see as we kind of move throughout the weeks, you're going to see that these are not different stories, but they are one large story, one grand story. They are God's story. They are our story. And as we do that, what I want you to kind of think about and kind of unpack is, is I want you to ask yourself this question. When you think of a story or watch a story or read a story or, or even daydream a story, what character do you play in that story? I, I know for myself, man, I, I, I want to be the hero. That's the character I want to play. If, if I'm reading the story of David and Goliath, I want to be David. I don't want to be Goliath. If I'm watching Star Wars with my family, I want to be Luke Skywalker. I want to yield the lightsaber and vanquish the Sith. That's what I want to do. And I think you would probably agree with that, that, that we want to be the heroes. We want to be the one who throws the game-winning touchdown and, and, and shoots the last basket at the buzzard and scores the final goal and, and knocks out the champ in the final round. We desire and aspire to be the hero. But is that who we are? In our story in God's story, is that who we are? Are we the hero? Are we the knight in shining armor? Do we come in and vanquish the enemy or do we play another role? Well, I think what we'll find is that we do play another role. We get this because we see this in the storyline of scripture and in the stories that Jesus tells us, the teachings of Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to focus on three stories, three of my favorite stories, three stories that are wrapped up in the gospel of Luke. And we're going to see that in these three stories, there's three parts to each story. And we're going to look at each part. We're not going to go through the whole of each story, but we're going to look at three or one part of each story throughout this series. And the first part we're going to look at is what we call, there is something lost. See, there are three parts, like I said, and the first part is something is lost. The, the second part is somebody is looking, somebody is searching, and the third part is there's a party. And what we're going to see as we walk through this, and we're going to focus today on that first part, there is something that is lost. We're going to see that we don't 
belong as the hero. We're not cast as the hero. In fact, we're, we're the object of the hero. We're the opposite, even, of the hero. We kind of play these two roles, and these are the roles that we play, and that's the big idea for this morning. So I want you to take a pencil or a pen and, and jot just this one sentence down or maybe put it on your phone. I want you to write down this statement or type this out. The character we play in our story and in God's story is this. We are the damsel and the dragon. We are the damsel and the dragon. We are the damsel in the sense that we are the damsel in distress. We are the victim. We need rescue. We need help. Somebody must come and save us. But at the same time, we're the dragon. We're the villain. We're the one who needs to be defeated. Now, that may feel like very souring news and disappointing news. You're probably thinking to yourself, well, if I can't be the hero then I'd rather be the damsel in distress. I mean, if I can't be Prince Philip, then let me be Sleeping Beauty, Aurora in the castle with a sleeping curse. Let me be that picture. Let me be that character. But in reality, there's a sense in which we are that, but we're more than that. We're the dragon. We have our tail wrapped around the castle and our talons piercing through the roof and we're breathing fire. There's a sense in which we are the villains. As we walk through this, here's what you're going to see. I think what you're going to see is we are going to unpack the storyline of God and learn a couple things. We're going to learn where we fit, where do we fit in the story, and then we're also going to learn how this shapes the future of our church's story. So let me unpack for you those kind of dual characters. We are the damsel and the dragon. Like I said, we're going to go to Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15. 15, and Jesus is going to tell us three different stories. But these three different stories are really one large story. It's the story of humanity. It's God's story, our story, the grand story, my story, your story. This is our story, humanity's story. And I want to focus on that first part of of the thing that is lost. This is where we're going to find ourselves. But let's first look at kind of the setting in which Jesus tells this story. Follow me in Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 1. This is the setting in which Jesus is going to tell these stories. And knowing this setting is very important because then we'll see why Jesus tells these three stories. Verse 1 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Now what's going on there? Uh, Luke sets up the scene for us very well. And he mentions that there's these two kind of characters involved. There's these tax collectors, and then there's these sinners, and they're coming near Jesus. Now, sinners, that's a pretty easy category to understand. These would be the immoral, the the impure. Uh, In the first century Jewish world, these would be those who disregarded God's Ten Commandments or his book of the law in the Old Testament. They, They didn't want anything to do with God or God's instructions. They're not looking to follow God. The tax collector category might sound a little strange or a little odd. Why does he clump them together with the sinners? Uh, Maybe for you, you feel like, hey, the tax guy's pretty good. I just got a stimulus check, and and I feel pretty good about that. But in the first century world, tax collectors were seen as the ultimate crook. You see, the tax collector was a a, a representative of Rome. He was a, a representative of the oppressor. He, he was a representative of the man, as you, we may call it, in the 21st century. 
And not only did he represent kind of Roman rule and, and was seen as a traitor to his countrymen, but the only way this guy made money is if he took more than what was needed, more than what the Romans wanted. So he was seen as, as a crook and, and as a person who was uh, uh, just taken by greed. So Jesus is hanging out with some, some pretty bad people here, impure people, immoral people, people with a checkered past. Now, why would Jesus do that? In fact, that's the reaction that Jesus finds himself in. He finds himself in a little bit of controversy here. Uh, look at the next verse, verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the religious leaders of the day, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them? They're saying to themselves, this is wrong. Jesus, you're, you're guilty by association. These people don't belong with you. The Pharisees were afraid that the impurity of these people would kind of rub off on them. It would be contagious. It would get on them. So we know that the Pharisees wouldn't even teach them the law, people in this category. They didn't even try to help them. And now Jesus is welcoming them, and and he's even eating with them. Why would Jesus do that? Is Jesus approving of their sin? Does he want to join in their sin? No, I don't think so. Go back to that first verse. The last phrase there is very important. It says these tax collectors and sinners, this is in verse 1, were all drawing near to hear him. That phrase is very important. To hear him. See, just a chapter before, chapter 14, Jesus really unpacks what it means to follow him. And he says, if you want to follow me, you you have to bear your cross. He says, you have to focus your allegiance on me, and I have to be your number one priority. So much so that you're willing to lose everything else if it gets in the way of following me. And then Jesus ends chapter 14 by this phrase. He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus just put the bar really high. He says, I demand ultimate allegiance. Do you want this? If you have an ear then come in here. And the next line we're told, these sinners, these tax tax collectors came to hear. They're curious about Jesus. They want to know who this Jesus is. They're considering following Jesus. This is why Jesus is eating with them. This is why Jesus is meeting with them. This is why Jesus is talking to them. He's hoping to move them from their sin and show them how they can start following him. Now, the Pharisees don't like this. And Jesus tells these three stories because he realizes the Pharisees are living the wrong story. They're denying who they are in the characters of God's story. They don't see the story right. They're not living the truth of their story, and they're missing the mission of God's story. So this is why Jesus tells these three stories. He says, you need to reorient yourself. You need to realize what character you are. And maybe for us, that's going to be the same challenge today. As people who aspire to be the hero, to be the victor, to be the one in triumph, to be the one who scores the winning goal and, and makes the last basket and scores the throwing or throws the scoring touchdown to take the lead and win the game. We always want to be the victor. But we need to realize that we're not the hero. Rather, we're the damsel in distress and we're the dragon. We need rescue. 
And there's a sense in which we need to be defeated. Let me show you how Jesus starts each of his parables. He mentions something that is lost. Look at the first part of our story. Jesus says this in verse 3. So he told them this parable, this story. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Jesus describes here a lost sheep. First, he describes this shepherd. This shepherd has a hundred sheep. Now, from what we know of ancient uh, Near Eastern uh, culture there, this would be a shepherd of modest means. See, an, an average shepherd would have around 200 to 300 sheep. And, and here this man only has 100. So he's much more familiar uh, with his sheep. He's, he's not like the, the average shepherd who would have so many, maybe he wouldn't be as connected or attached to them. He, he just has 100 of them. And what we know here, it sounds like the owner, this shepherd, is watching over his own flock. This would be something that would be delegated to a guard or to a, a hired hand or something like that. But, but this man doesn't have that kind of means, so he looks after his own property. He's like a, a small business owner. This is, this is significant work to him. This is not just his livelihood, but there's a connection to these sheep. And so losing one of them would be extremely significant to this man. This is an important thing that got lost. Now, let's just unpack that lostness there. If you think of a sheep, a sheep is not the most intelligent of animals. A small distraction could move them away from the provision and the protection of their shepherd. We wouldn't say that this sheep intentionally lost his way. We don't see that. They don't rebel like that. They're very obedient kind of creatures, but they're not always the wisest and most intelligent. So something small can veer them off and take them to a place that they do not want. And the shepherd must go out and find them because they're not going to find their way back home. They're not smart enough to put that together. So what we unpack from here is what this sheep very much fits that role of a damsel in distress, this, this sheep is a, is a victim of his circumstance, a victim of outside sources. He has accidentally fallen into this state. The second story is very similar to that in its description of lostness. Jesus tells a second parable, a second story in verse 8. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. What's being described here? You have, instead of a sheep, now we have a coin. We have this coin, this silver coin. This coin here would probably be the value of a day's wage. So it's pretty significant. It's probably the savings of this woman. Now, it's hard for us to determine how significant this is and how valuable this is, but I think Jesus gives us a clue here. I think Jesus gives us a clue simply by how he takes the ratio and shrinks it down. He goes from one to a hundred to one in ten. So I think what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, look, this next one is more unique, more significant. There's more attachment. It's more valuable. This thing would be significant if it was lost, very deeply meaningful if it was lost. And what happened? The coin was lost. And very similar to the sheep, it was probably Unintentional. I mean, we can't say a coin would intentionally 
lose itself. I mean, I know my socks intentionally lose themselves, so maybe you have that same kind of dilemma, but this is not what's happening here. The the coin simply rolled off the shelf. It just fell under maybe in a crevice in in the floor or behind something. Coins don't lose themselves. We lose coins. And so what's described here is, again, that that kind of idea of a damsel in distress, a, a victim of outside forces, a victim of circumstance, something that is in need of rescue. And this is true of us. This is true of you. This is true of me. This is true of humanity. We are victims. We very much fit that role of the damsel in distress. We zoom out from here. We look in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians. Paul hints at this idea in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says this. And you were dead in your trespasses. This is a transgression or sin. And sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What is he describing there? He's saying we are in bondage to the, to the demonic. We are in bondage to sin. We are spiritually dead. We, we very much so are, are the damsel locked in the high tower and we have a sleeping curse and we're waiting for the night to come to awake us from our spiritual slumber. We need rescue. You see, the problem is that's not the full story. That's part of the story, but we also play another role. We also are another character. And I think what Jesus is doing in Luke 15 is he's kind of bringing us to that point. You see, in the third story, that's where we get that other dynamic. The first two stories in describing us and describing humanity speak of lostness as if we are victims. We are unintentionally victims of our outside circumstances. But it's the next parable, the next story in which he unpacks another sense of our lostness. It is our rebellion. It is when we become the dragon. Let me, let me show you this in Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And, a younger, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now stop right here. What's, what's happening We have an idea that there are two sons. We're not told about daughters or any other sons here. So we have two sons. And there's there's the idea of the division of property, the division of an inheritance. And so the older son, according to the book of Deuteronomy and the custom in the ancient Near East, he would get a double portion. So he would get two-thirds of the estate. This younger son, the one that's mentioned here, would only get a third, which is still a vast some, but, but that's what he would get. And so what this young man has asked for is, Dad, can I have that now? Now, from what we can tell and what's being described here, this, this young man is, is probably very young because he's single. A wife is not mentioned. We get further down in the story, and he seems to be living the single life. So this would probably be a teenage boy because marriage would happen very early in the ancient Near East. So we have this 18-year-old boy, let's say, who goes to his dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance. 
Now, the awkward part of this, and, and we know this and how we deal with things legally in the 21st century, is you don't get an inheritance until that person dies. You, you can't become an heir if the person is still, is still living. Well, that is true here, too. We do have some occasions where we see people in the ancient Near East giving up the inheritance while they're living, but it's very uncommon, and we actually have sources that say and recommend not to do that. So we could say even back then, it was very rare that 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 would happen, and it was not common. But what this young boy is asking is really offensive. The, The term used when he speaks of inheritance is actually a very basic Greek word. It means life. Give me the life that is coming to me. Give me what I get when you die. That's what he's saying. What I benefit from when your life is gone, give me that. Essentially what he's saying to his father is, Dad, I would be better off if you were dead. So let's pretend you are. What do I get? Now imagine if your 18-year-old son did that to you. Dad, I want the car keys, and I want one-third of your net worth right now. I'm sure you would not grant that request. Yet here it says that the father does that, that he divides up the inheritance. Somehow he liquidates some assets or something like that and gives this son just a lump sum of cash. I think there's a picture there of how God gives us freedom, how God says, You choose if you live under my provision or if you seek pleasure somewhere else. God gives us the gift of of freedom, the gift of of a choice. And the son uses this choice to rebel. He's offended his father, and now he's going to run to a foreign land. Look at what he does with his property. Verse 13. Not many days later, The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. Just try to make this personal right here. Again, you have your 18-year-old son. He asked for the car keys. He asked for a third of your net worth, which is probably taking this father from what we know of the age of the boys probably is that probably took him about 40 years to accumulate kind of this uh, amount of wealth. And this boy has asked for a third of that and then wasted on a weekend. Imagine your 18-year-old son taking the keys, a third of your net worth, running off to Vegas, spending it all on a weekend. You would be humiliated. You would be offended. You would be shamed. You would be the talk of the town. And it wouldn't be in flattering terms. This is very much so our sense of lostness. See, this is, this is different than the coin. This is different than the sheep. The, the sheep unintentionally found himself away from his master, would never want to be away from the provision of his master, never be away from his protection, but always wanting to be near him. The coin rolled off the shelf. Here, the son rebels with intention, with, with offense, with malice. Almost an eager sense to defame his father. 
and run off to this foreign land. This truly is our rebellion too. This is how we're the dragon, not just the damsel in distress that needs rescue, but we need rescue from ourselves. Paul picks up the same idea back in Ephesians chapter 2, what we just read, but the the next verse, in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We carried out the passions of our own flesh. We are prisoners in a cell of our own making. Yes, it's true. We are in bondage to the demonic. We are spiritually dead. But who put those chains on us? We sold ourselves into slavery. We rebelled. We ran away. We are the ones who have placed ourselves in this position. We committed spiritual suicide. We're not just the ones under a sleeping curse in a tower. But we are the dragons. We are the ones that not only need rescue, but we need to be rescued from ourselves. How? How can we find rescue? How can we find hope? How can we find a way out of this situation? Well, look at how this young man comes to his senses. It says in Luke chapter 15, as he runs away in this rebellion, this reckless living, he runs into the consequence of sin, which is the consequence of all sin. He says, it says in verse 14, and when he had spent everything and a severe famine arose in the country, he began to be in need. So he went out and he hired himself out to the citizens of that country who set, sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Man, this boy has hit an all-time low here. He has run headlong into the consequence of sin. What he was looking for, the satisfaction, the pleasure, the love, the the passion, the excitement, the joy, the sense of, of belonging and purpose, all the things he thought he would find in this foreign land have left him empty. He is chased after vanity, and now he is at the end of himself. It says that the only job that he could find is the most disgraceful job that a Jew could ever have. See, the Jewish people thought that pigs uh, were, were unclean. We know this from the book of Leviticus. One rabbi is even quoted saying, cursed is the man who raises swine. Right here, this man has sunk to the lowest of lows. This Jewish young boy is alone. He's scared. He has no money. He has no family. He's hit rock bottom. And is at this point, the hard facts of life have been thrust right in front of him, and he has a moment of clarity. I think it's interesting that hardship does this to us. Crisis will do this to us. Hitting rock bottom is finally, sometimes the only time we start to look up. 
and not just looking forward and saying, I'm just going to keep going on this course that I've chosen. But when we hit the bottom, that's when we look up and say, maybe I need to reconsider. And that's what this boy does. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He recalls, he goes back, he imagines again, man, I know in my dad's house, he's not hungry. I know my older brother is not hungry, but he says even more than that. He says, the hired servants even have more. Now, this term is actually a very unique term. It's not even the term slave. Slave would be too high of a term. This term hired servant is the lowest of laborers in the first century world. It would be like a day laborer, maybe in our context. Somebody who only gets paid for a day's work and doesn't have a guarantee of tomorrow. This is what he's saying. Even this this low-level laborer has more of an abundance than I have. This man seeks out what? He seeks out repentance. To turn his life from where he was going. To turn back to the Father. To come to him and say, Father, grant me mercy. This theme, repentance, is throughout Luke chapter 15. And in fact, it's one of Luke's favorite terms. In the book of Luke, in the book of Acts, this is all penned by Luke here. His two books, 25 times contain that word repentance. It means to turn around, to move away from what one is doing and set a new course. This is what's happening right now for this boy. This is the only hope that he has. He realizes that he's not just a victim, but he is a villain. He's not just the damsel, he's the dragon. And the only way the hero comes in to save the day is if he repents and he turns away from his sin. Look at his picture of repentance as he plans out his course back to the Father. Verse 18, he says, I will arise, I will go to my Father, and I will say to them, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before You, what does he do there? Do you see what he's doing? He's not just sorry for what he's lost. He's sorry for his sin. He's sorry for what he's done. He says, first and foremost, I've sinned against heaven. It's it's a reference point for God. He's saying, I've sinned against God. God wrote the Ten Commandments. And the Fifth Commandment says, honor thy father and mother. I've broken that one. He says, Father, I've sinned against you. But more than that, Father, I've sinned against my heavenly Father. I've sinned against God. He runs to his Father, not with merit, but asking for mercy. I have sinned. He confesses. And then look what he says. Because of this sin, he is not worthy. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He says, I do not merit anything. You have no reason to ever call me your son. But he runs to his father and says, would you call me? I know not son, but would you call me the lowest of laborers? The lowest of servants. Lower than a slave, would you at least call me that he runs to the Father with nothing but need? Nothing but need, asking for mercy, confessing his sin. This, this is how the hero comes in. 
is when we realize that the only pathway for the hero to come in is through repentance. Turning our life over. Getting that rescue that we so desperately need. Getting that rescue from ourselves. I told you that I would tell you part of my story. And like I said in the beginning, and and maybe you can identify with, I, I always wanted to be the hero. In everything I did, I always wanted to win. And I think very much I still always want to win. You can ask my kids when we play Candyland. I still get really, really competitive. And, but I've always had that drive in me, and I've always wanted to be the winner, the, the, the victor. I, I've always wanted to be the one to take the last shot, to, to throw the winning touchdown, to knock out the champ in the final round. I've always dreamed of doing that and always strived to achieve and to win. You see, but in my life, I've many times not felt like a victor, but rather like a victim. I remember, especially in my teenage years, this is, this, is, this is the role I felt I was playing. This was the character I was cast as, the victim. I felt like I was a victim of all, all the sinful choices that were around me, all the choices that were outside of me. I was a, a victim of a divorce, a messy divorce. I was a, a victim of a drug overdose. My father uh, overdosed on heroin when I was was young. I was a victim of, of, of poverty, and I, and I felt that this is where my place was in the story. I needed rescue. I needed somebody to come in. I needed the knight in shining armor to rescue me. I was the damsel in distress. That's who I was. But I remember the day that I realized that that wasn't completely true. In fact, there was a greater truth. There was another character that I was. I was not just the damsel. <laughs> I was the dragon. I remember the day this story was told to me. God's story. The gospel story. The story that speaks of my deep need for forgiveness. The story that speaks of God's gift of forgiveness provided in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The story that says this gift can be received only by faith and repentance. And I realized when that story was played out in front of me, That my greatest enemy was not outside of me, but inside of me. That my greatest enemy wasn't the sin of other people, but it was my sin. It was my sin. I had put myself in bondage. I had put myself under demonic influence. I had put myself under the slavery of sin. I had committed spiritual suicide in choosing sin and running from God and chasing after rebellion and chasing after things that I said, God, I don't want your way. I want my way. What I chose was my own prison. But on that day, I realized that I needed rescue and rescue first and foremost from myself, from my sin. I needed Jesus to play the hero. I need Jesus to come into my life. And that was a great day, a great day that changed my perspective, that helped me realize the story that was true of me. Now, I said also that this would speak of the future of our church, the future of Valley Bible Church. You see, I was on staff here at Valley Bible Church over six years ago and had a wonderful and great time serving on this team for about five years. 
And so I've known of Valley Bible Church for about 11 years and learned about its history from the team that was here and continues to be here and the people that are here. And there's one thing I know that is clearly true from the history of Valley Bible Church, and that is this. Valley Bible Church has had wonderful pastors, wonderful leaders, wonderful people. And when we're able to open these doors again, you will see those wonderful people. You will see that wonderful staff. You will see those wonderful volunteers. With all these wonderful people and all these wonderful pastors, Valley Bible Church has always had one hero, and that is Jesus Christ. Valley Bible Church has always been a place where people run not with a resume of their merit, running to God saying, look, you should love me. If you're a fair God, you will bless me. Valley Bible Church has always been a church where those who come are running not with merit in their hand, not not running with a resume, but running to God with a rap sheet, saying, here is my checkered past. Here are my crimes. All I have before you are empty hands begging for mercy. Valley Bible Church has always been a church where lost sons and lost daughters are welcome to come in. And Valley Bible Church will always be that church. My ambition here as your lead pastor is never to be your hero, but to point you to the one who has been our hero this whole time, and that is Jesus Christ. If you're looking for a church, that will always welcome you, no matter what your past is. This is that church. There's a story that I love to hear. Phil tells it of, of when, when everything was first starting, he was approached by somebody who brought along some people, and they came up to him and said, these people don't really fit with our church. Could they fit at your church? What an interesting statement. And you know and I know how that story ends It ends with welcome. Of course they're welcome here. This has always been Valley Bible Church, and this will always be Valley Bible Church. Our hero is Jesus Christ, and he welcomes all who run to him in repentance and come to him begging for mercy. Now, maybe you're here, and you're watching this, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what? My life feels a lot like like that young man's life. He experienced these storms. He experienced this famine. He, he ran out of wealth. He ran out of funds. And Maybe you're feeling like you've come to the end of yourself. Uh, maybe this pandemic and this crisis and this financial crisis and this health crisis and this emotional wellness crisis, I mean, all of this, maybe you're starting to realize that the path that you've been on is not one that you find true fulfillment in. You've been looking for love and looking for compassion and, 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 and purpose. And you've been looking for, for friendship and relationship and, and, and all these different things, but you can't seem to find them. And it's at this point that you just feel life is pressing on you and you don't see any sense of hope coming over the horizon. Maybe you find yourself at the end of yourself and you're just like that young boy. That young boy who's so hungry He would dine with pigs, but he can't even do that. If that's you, if this crisis has placed you in that situation, please, 
Hear how that story continues. Know that in the Father's house, there is love. There is belonging. There is purpose. And there is not resentment. Even though this boy's rebellion was a shame to the father, it did not push the father away from that son. And the same thing is true for you. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what you have on your rap sheet. Friend, all that means is you qualify for mercy, as all of us do. My encouragement to you is run to the Father. From his vantage point, he's lost you. He gave you freedom. And somehow you wandered off. Wandered off, yes, and it's true that you're a victim of your circumstances, but it's also true that you're a villain. It's true that you're a damsel in distress, but you're also the dragon as well. But he's waiting for you without such arms saying, come back, turn back to me, repent. Friend, you can find mercy and find it today. This is how the story ends well. We all start here. We all start lost. But the story ends well if we run to the Father for mercy. In fact, friend, if you want to do that today, I'm going to pray in a moment. And I'm going to pray for everybody who's listening. But I'm going to pray at the end specifically for you. If you want to draw the line in the sand, if you want to step over and say, today's the day I follow Jesus. Today's the day I come back to the Father who made me and loves me and is waiting for me to run back to him. Friend, I want you to listen very attentively to that last part of my prayer because it's a prayer for you and it's a prayer I hope that you follow me in. Let's all pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ, that you, Father, are a compassionate God who loves us so deeply. Father, it's true that we are all lost. We are damsels in distress. We need rescue. We need your help. We need you to come in. We need you to win the day. But Father, it is also true that we are the dragon. We are the villain. We need to be released from the bondage we've placed ourselves in. We need to be rescued from ourselves, from our sin and from our selfishness, from our pride, from our greed, from our lust, from our anger, from our envy, Oh, Father, our sins are many. Will you rescue us? You answer, yes, yes, Father. You say, yes, I will rescue you. Father, help us to always be a church that welcomes those that are running to the Father for mercy. God, help us to see that people don't come in here who are qualified as righteous who come in here with a great spiritual resume, deeds done in your name that allow them to sit in the front row in the comfortable seat. No, Father, that is not your house. Those who are welcome are those who are humbled by your mercy, humbled by your grace. Father, I pray that you'd continue as you've done before to be faithful to this church, to draw those who need your mercy to this place. And Father, for those right now that are listening to this, watching this, God, if they have not received your mercy, Father, I pray that they'll receive it today. 
Again, if that's you, if, if you're watching this just on your phone or your computer screen or even in your family room and the kids are running around at this time, I pray that you would find a moment, a moment just between you and God where you can do some business with God. If you want to start following Jesus today, my, my, my hope is that you would follow me in this very simple prayer that, that means something only from your heart, not my heart. But in the silence of your own heart, you could pray a very simple prayer like this. You could say, Father, I see that I need you, that I need your forgiveness, that I need rescue, that I need your help, that I'm a slave to my sin. I need you. Deliver me from myself. Father, I see that you've provided a way of forgiveness in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, I receive that right now in faith. I repent and I turn from my sin. I turn away like that young boy did. Today, I'm running back, Father, to your house and to your arms. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Church family, again, thank you for joining us. If you made that decision to follow Jesus Christ for the first time, I'm 100% thrilled with that. And I want to walk with you and journey with you in that. Please reach out to us. Go to our website. Make sure you email us. Any of the pastors would love to receive that. I would love to receive that. So just find my photo. Click on it. Send me an email and say, Pastor Paul, I I want you to know that today I started following Jesus. Jesus. It'd be so great to communicate with you, maybe give you a phone call, give you a gift of a Bible. We would love to start this journey with you. Again, thank you for watching our live stream. We look forward to when we can meet together again.